This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new Jeep Wrangler, giving you the freedom to pursue adventures. Like former pro surfer John Rose. Anybody who's a professional athlete, there's an arc, you know, there's a shelf life. For me, I was a pro surfer. I was never the best, but I carved my own niche out and I did it for 13 years. It was everything to me. In 2009, John went to Indonesia on a surf trip right when it got hit by a magnitude 7.6 earthquake. And I became sort of a first responder by accident. One month later was Haiti, the big catastrophic earthquake in January 2010. I thought I was going for two weeks, I stayed for two years. So that was the inception of Waves for Water. Waves for Water is an aid organization that helps provide clean water in more than 40 countries. We have one sole purpose, provide access to clean drinking water for developing communities. Not just developing communities, but recovering communities too. For the last eight years, whenever a disaster strikes that threatens drinking water, like an earthquake, tsunami, or hurricane, John and his team show up with suitcases full of water filters. In the first three weeks after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, he set up 3,600 filtration stations and got clean water to 100,000 people. Thinking about that trajectory was it was so fast. And I mean, I, I bought 10 filters, my own money, went to Indonesia, and three months later in Haiti, somebody offered me $40,000 to do as much as I could with that. It was not going to be my job. It was going to be a pet project. And then it blossomed. These days, with a team in place running waves for water, John is looking for the next challenge, the next adventure. And Jeep is helping him get there. Find out more at jeep.com wrangler. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. There's no simple answer to the question of where wolves belong in the modern world. But here's something that pretty much everyone agrees on. If you're an elk or any animal that gets taken down by a wolf pack, it's a really terrible way to die. Other predators kill their prey quickly, almost surgically. One bite to the back of the neck by a mountain lion and you're done. And wolves are not like that. Wolves chase their prey. Usually their prey sees them coming and starts running. This is writer Emma Maris. And the wolves basically wear their prey out. They're long distance runners. They can run and run and run and run and they will just outlast their prey. And then as their prey begins to falter and slow down, they'll start biting it. But their teeth are not actually designed to really um, slash and cause bleeding. Their teeth are, are kind of blunt but their jaws are incredibly strong, way stronger than a domestic dog. So what they'll do is they'll bite these animals and it'll cause massive internal bleeding. And then a lot of times the animals will die of internal hemorrhaging, internal bleeding, and just fall down. So if like a cat is sort of a scalpel, wolves are almost a hammer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if I Maybe this is why the big bad wolf is the villain in so many fairy tales and fables. Wolves don't kill people. They just embody our fear of dying slowly and terribly. So they're scary. But it wasn't always like this. Oral traditions tell of a symbiotic relationship between wolves and hunters. Wolves would howl and help humans locate prey to kill. Then humans would give them the leftovers. They were partners in the hunt. But then people started farming. In this new system, wolves became the competition. 
They'd lurk around and kill livestock when elk or deer were hard to come by. And when they did, we'd kill them. The first systematic attacks on wolves by humans date back 10,000 years to the same time and place as the invention of agriculture in the Nile River Delta in Egypt. In fact, the more we altered the landscape to suit our own purposes, the more we came into conflict with wolves. Throughout Europe, wolves became the villain of all the best fairy tales. A few centuries later, as settlers pushed west across North America, we got serious about getting rid of them completely. In 1843, in what would become the state of Oregon, one of the first gatherings of settlers was when farmers came together to figure out what to do about livestock lost to wolves. The very first time anybody, like like a group of people got together. Yeah, I mean, I'll have to look this up, but my understanding is that like the sort of proto, the progenitor, like the kind of earliest version of the Oregon Senate was the Oregon Let's Kill All the Wolves Club. We were really good at killing wolves but it still took about a hundred years to get rid of all of them. Because wolves are really good at not being gotten rid of. Each pack has one breeding pair, producing seven pups each year. But if you shoot that pair, other wolves will step up and keep breeding. Meanwhile, their offspring are growing up and wandering away from the pack to go find their own mates. So even if you take out a whole pack, you create a vacant territory that a new young wolf family may very well move into. The only way to get rid of wolves is poison, um, because they're 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 smart. They're you can't uh, if you try to shoot out every wolf, or tr- even trap out every wolf in the country, you, they would they would reproduce faster than you could kill them. Um, but strychnine, um, that is how they managed to kill the wolves. Oregon's last wolf was killed in 1947, and wolves stayed away. But it was only a few decades later that we decided we'd made a mistake. The Endangered Species Act said that because wolves had been a part of the landscape before we got rid of them, we should at least try to put them back. So in 1995, U.S. Fish and Wildlife released 66 wolves from Canada into Yellowstone National Park. Wolves did better than they expected. The first wolves that they reintroduced, they did these really soft, careful releases where they they brought them in crates and then they had them in these enclosures where they acclimatized them to their new ecosystem and then they slowly let them out. By the end, they were just dumping them out of boxes and they were fine. As a species, wolves were off to the races. It took them just four years to populate Montana and Idaho and start wandering into Oregon in 1999. It wasn't until 2005 that wolves were coming to Oregon regularly. But unlike those other states, Oregon doesn't have quite the same kind of vast, unpopulated wilderness, where wolves and elk can basically be left alone to sort things out. In Oregon, wolves were showing up in Wallowa County, a mountainous part of the state. So far north and east, it's practically Idaho. It looks like a beer commercial out there, but the wilderness butts right up against cattle ranches. And in the spring, the elk come down from the mountains and graze in the pastures. Which brings us to the main character in this story, Wolf OR4, who started calling this place home. Well, that's one, I guess one of the things I like about OR4 is that he just emerges, sort of fully grown from, from the mists of history, kind of like a, you know, a legendary hero. He just shows up. Wolf OR4 is named for the fact that he was the fourth wolf to be collared in Oregon. He had this dark black fur and weighed 90 to 115 pounds, depending on the time of year. That's 20 to 30 pounds heavier than a typical wolf. He was the alpha male of the first pack to establish itself in Oregon since 1947. But OR4 was remarkable for more than just being first. He was also very good at being a wolf. 
I think the, the adjective that summarizes that most succinctly is competent. Like that's what a wolf is. It's a wolf is competent. A wolf can hunt and kill and, and feed its family and survive the rigors of the winter and being kicked in the head by elk and find a mate and raise just generation after generation of pups to adulthood and holds territory against interlopers. He's competent. Wolf OR4 was just a year or two old when he had his first litter of pups in 2007 or 2008. His mate was a wolf that had been collared in Idaho named B300, and together they became the Imnaha pack. And I guess just a little parenthetical about the terms pack and alpha and all that stuff. These are really just families. Like they're just mom, dad, kids, sometimes an aunt and uncle or a hanger on or a family friend. So a pack, you know, this terminology of pack and alpha, you could just as well say family and father and mother. In any case, by the time it was discovered, the Imnaha pack had at least 10 members, five of them pups. And since the pups stay in the den with their mother for the first three months, it falls to the male to keep them fed. That means chasing down and killing some prey, eating it, then running back to your den to throw up what you ate so your pups and mate can feed. Sometimes you make a couple of trips. One time, Wolf OR4 killed an elk 33 miles from his den. That means he did 66 miles that day, with an elk hunt in the middle of it. That's what it means to be a competent wolf. Which brings us to our other main character, Russ Morgan. Russ is very competent, you know, and I think that there's... Um, maybe there's a little bit of kinship there because they're both just really good at what they do. Describe Russ a little bit. Um, Russ grew up near Bend, um, and he's always knew he wanted to be in wildlife management since he was a kid. Russ Morgan was hired by the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, or ODFW, as wolf manager. His job was to track and collar wolves as they reestablished a population in Oregon. Emma followed him on the job while reporting her story. And Russ is the kind of guy who makes his own arrows to hunt elk with and says he'd rather follow the tracks of a wolf than actually see it in the wild. Because you learn so much more from tracking. You know, where they stop, where they pee. Just a note here, Russ wasn't available for an interview, and Emma's story was assigned as a print story. So these recordings were never meant to be used on a podcast, but we're using them. I tracked one in the winter at one time just for fun for about a mile or two. Walked up to where he, I could see this snow-covered little fir tree, like up on a ski mountain, you know, where it's just totally uh-huh. white. And half of the tree is yellow. <laughs> I think, oh, okay, there's a pea spot. So I went up there, you know, and I could measure the, the, the pea started 21 inches off the ground. And I'm thinking, okay, so there's a male. I knew he was a male wolf. Right. So I could tell his sex. Um, I could tell he was a big mother because that's a long ways off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, watched how he moved through the woods. All this stuff happens in just one couple hour stroll on the top of a wolf track. Um, For the first few years of Russ's tenure, however, there were no wolves to track. He couldn't find them. He drove around through the woods for hours at night, literally howling out of his car window, waiting for something to answer back. When wolves did finally show up, Russ's management decisions were guided by the Oregon Wolf Plan, a document written by his predecessor that outlined how the reintroduction of wolves would be handled by ODFW. In July of 2009, he trapped and collared B300 in Oregon, and she became known as OR2. But it was another month before he found OR4 and their pups. They were eating an elk that had gone down in a stream bed. And they all ran off 
This was in August 2009. And they all ran off, and then OR4 came back to challenge Russ and stood there barking at him. And barking is really the word. I mean, Russ says that most wolves don't really bark. They, they howl and they growl. But OR4 had this call that, or this kind of vocalization that he referred to as sort of like a junkyard dog. And it's definitely, there's some bark to it. It's like very grumbly, growly. I've got some, there's some tape of it you've probably heard. And this was just a very impressive individual. He was uh, in the prime of his youth and good looking and dark black and bold, you know, barking at Russ in that way. So he was impressed with him, for sure. And, um, and I think that that sense of respect lasted throughout the, you know, from 2009 to, to 2016. Since the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone, a lot has been made of their ecological significance and how they make a landscape more wild. It has to do with something called a trophic cascade. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. This is George Monbiot from a 2013 TED Talk about how the reintroduction of wolves changed Yellowstone. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. What happens is there's a domino effect when you reintroduce a top predator. Because while that predator was away, it's very likely that the species they eat flourished. The numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. Put another way, Monbiot's theory suggests that bringing back a top predator creates a ripple effect down the food chain, bringing all these other species into balance. That's a trophic cascade. But the crazy thing was, it didn't even require the wolves to be successful hunters. They just had to be present on the landscape. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. In the absence of herbivores, Mambio says, the plants thrived. Trees literally grew taller. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes, and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. The effect was so profound, he says that the rivers actually started changing course. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The, the cha channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. It's an amazing story. 
The problem was, it isn't quite true. More recent studies of herbivores, specifically the elk that wolves hunt, suggest that they don't actually change their grazing behavior very much in response to wolves. And other teams of researchers didn't find such clear evidence that the trees were growing back. And while declines in the number of elk do have ripple effects throughout the park, those declines can't all be chalked up to wolves. During the same stretch of years, grizzly bears boomed, and they eat elk calves. Hunting pressure also increased, right outside park boundaries. And there was a drought. So elk were down, but for lots of reasons. So it's an incredibly popular video, and a seductive story. But it's almost entirely untrue, or at least much more complicated than it seems. Wolves change things, but they aren't gods. But even so, this story that Mambio tells, it took off. In large part because of this TED Talk, wolves became the mascot for trophic cascades. And the shorthand for that whole process was the term rewilding. Thing is, in the absence of wolves, humans have been pretty busy dewilding the landscape, altering it to fit our tastes. We've built roads and highways. We've dammed rivers and created lakes where there were none. So the reintroduction of wolves became a way to answer the question of just what have we done to the wilderness? Is it completely unwild? Have we pushed it over the edge? Or could wolves bring it back? And if they could, what would that mean for the people who live out there? Because in the absence of wolves, ranchers got used to a safer landscape, a place where dumb, placid cattle could be left unattended to graze the mountains for weeks at a time. But not anymore. So just about from this spot or on the top of this hill, I could talk all day about all that's gone on from right here. So this is the, the zone right here. This is the upper valley. Um, this is where all the bad shit happened, to be honest with you. The bad shit, as Russ calls it, started in May 2010, when the Imnaha pack started taking cattle. To put it in perspective, you know, it probably represented some very small percentage of their overall diet. They would take a, you know, a, a steer calf and then disappear for months and then take another one. So it's not like they were living off of this livestock. It was something that they did just occasionally. But they did it often enough to really piss off the local ranching community. So the ranching community started asking Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife to get rid of them. They tried non-lethal methods first, like double fencing livestock and installing a squawk box that would make a noise when it detected a wolf's radio tracking collar. But the pack kept taking animals. Overall, wolves cause just a tiny fraction of cattle mortality. But because they're so new and controversial, they get a lot of attention. Part of Russ's job was to investigate each incident and determine whether or not it had been a wolf. There was a lot riding on each investigation. The environmental group Defenders of Wildlife had a fund that compensates ranchers if wolves take their cattle. In 2011, the state of Oregon took over the payments. So if Russ said yes, it was a wolf, ranchers got money. If not, they got nothing. Some kills were easy to figure out. You could see teeth marks and tracks and bruising on the hide where wolves had crushed muscle and skin with their teeth. Others were just a dead animal in a field. Remember, these ranchers are reporting a lot of dead animals as wolf kills, but only some of them actually are wolf kills. So Russ is spending a lot of time telling ranchers that not only are they wrong, they're wrong in such a way that they don't get $1,000, give or take. In fact, trust was so low between all parties that anytime Russ did shoot a wolf, 
he was required to present the carcasses to the local sheriff so he could verify that he'd actually made the kill. Russ hated it, but he had no other choice. In February of 2010, three members of the Imnaha pack, including OR4, had gotten radio tracking collars, so ODFW could see whether they were in the area when livestock was killed. Sometimes that was unnecessary. In March, ranchers found two members of the pack inside a cattle pen. Again, ODFW tried non-lethal controls. They set up fladry and electrified fences to teach wolves to stay out. They tracked pack movement by radio collar and alerted ranchers when there were wolves in the area. All of these measures were meant to protect the wolves as much as the cattle, but they only worked for a while. On May 5th and May 20th, 2010, the wolves came back and killed two calves in two weeks. And um, at that point, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife told the ranchers, look, if you see this wolf in the act, you can shoot it. And at this point, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife is making the rules up on its own. There's no legal framework in place. They basically, they have the authority to decide what the rules are of engagement. Then on May 27th, they killed again. May 29th, two more. June 4th, another one. The Imnaha pack had killed six animals in a month. As part of her reporting, Emma talked to a lot of ranchers in Wallawa County. She also went on a wolf tour put on by an environmental group. So we didn't just look at where the wolves lived, we also talked to some ranchers who'd lost stock. And that was a really eye-opening, I think, for a lot of the people on the trip because, uh, you know, the rancher was clearly upset at the suffering of his animals and what they'd endured. I mean, I described how wolves kill, it's not pretty. So it's a pretty horrible way to go. And, and the women I was with, in fact, they were all women on that trip, um, were astonished that this rancher felt sorry for his, for his livestock. And I think that they didn't realize that there was any kind of emotional connection between a rancher and their stock. But just as powerful as the rancher-cow connection is the environmentalist wolf connection. In June, ODFW issued a kill order on two wolves in the Imnaha pack. If they come anywhere near a property where they'd taken cattle before, ODFW said, they'll be killed. Almost as soon as that order went through, however, OR4 left town. The pack moved up higher into the mountains, toward a forested area, away from livestock. And then a month later, a cluster of environmental groups requested an injunction against the order because ODFW had issued a kill order on an animal protected under the Endangered Species Act. The group requested additional environmental review, and it slowed things way down. He just got away with it, just barely. Um, and that's sort of part of the, the drama of it. Things were quiet the rest of 2010. But then the next year, 2011, calving season rolled around again. And the Imnaha pack picked up right where it left off. A wolf needs to eat seven pounds of meat per day. Data from Yellowstone suggests that to get enough food, a wolf needs to kill, on average, two elk each month during the winter. Average that out over an entire pack, and wolves make a kill every two or three days. In the summer of 2011, the Imnaha pack was now close to 15 members, and ODFW decided to give them fewer mouths to feed by killing two members of the pack. Wildlife officials trapped and killed OR4's son and shot his daughter. But reducing their numbers didn't work. Overall, cattle was still a pretty minor part of their diet. 
but in the fall of 2011, the Amnaha pack took one animal too many. So in September 2011, yeah, in September 2011, they decided to go after uh, OR4. Um, September 24th. There wasn't much guesswork in the hunt for OR4. Russ simply looked up his location with the radio collar and saw that he was in a little stand of pine trees, probably waiting out the rain. Then he went there with his assistant, Roblin Brown. So she's going to flush him towards you? She's going to actually push him out, yeah. I can tell by the signal. I'm listening to the signal. And I can tell they're slow, but they're in there and they're moving. They're come, moving to the left, which means they're coming just right what I thought. Well, so I'm set up. I have my car door, truck door open, rifle on a bipod right at that opening. So you're in the truck? No, standing right outside of it. Okay. Um, but it just kind of was leaning up against it, essentially waiting. And they get closer and closer and closer. Everything was set for a kill. At the crucial moment, however, Russ heard a sound behind him and turned around. And when I looked back, OR4 was standing right in the open, right where my rifle was pointed, right exactly as I had predicted. I grabbed, grabbed the gun, and I, I had already had it on the bipod, and I grabbed it, and I put, just as I was getting the crosshairs on the wolf, he took off, just vanished in the trees. I mean, literally, had he been there, I would say another half a second, it was an easy shot. I would have shot him. Mm-hmm. It's easy to question Russ in that moment, to say that he could have pulled the trigger and hesitated. But Russ says that's false. There was no pause. I've, I've told everybody, I mean, I really have never told this story openly, but all the people internally yeah. that I've told this, I think everybody that knows me knows there was no pause. Yeah. If, had he been there another half second later, I'd have shot him. But, and when, he, when, when you lost him, when he goes back into those trees, do you feel... Uh, disappointment? Do you feel adrenaline? What do you? What to be you... honest with you, I don't know. I mean, I didn't want to kill him. Obviously, it was a hard. Uh, the whole day was kind of a. It was kind of a horrible thing, you know. Yeah. So I didn't. So I don't really know what I felt. All I know is that when I get, I mean, I was in the mode, the killing mode, mm-hmm. like it or not, you have to. In order to do that, you have to convince yourself. But you're going to do it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I mean, I would I would have been looking the other way all the time, you know. Right. I was trying to to get it done. We we made the decision. It was he was going to die, you know. That's how once we made that decision, he was going to die. It's just who's going to get him. And if I'm out there, I'm going to do it. So Russ had missed his first chance, but he was still out there. And he still had the rifle and a radio collar tracker. It would take him straight to OR4. So Roblin and I set up on the hill, and we're waiting, and the signal's getting stronger and stronger. And that's kind of a sick feeling, because you know I can see everything out in front of me, mm-hmm. and they're coming down the canyon. It's like, it's just a matter of time here in another couple minutes. Mm. They're going to be dead. Right. And there's nothing to do about it. So you just sit there, and you wait. And here it comes. Well, Russ prepared his rifle and got ready to shoot. Rob Lynn checked her phone, and when she did, she saw a text message that said, stand down. Environmental groups had convinced a judge to halt the kill order, arguing that they lacked the authority to take wolves, and that killing OR4 would be doing irreparable harm to the members of the environmental groups, denying them, quote, the profound and exhilarating experience of viewing wolves in the wild. So two times within an hour, that wolf skirted death. 
literally by the skin of his teeth. I mean, that's, you can't get it any closer than that. The lawsuit that stayed the kill order put wolf management in a holding pattern until the parties could agree on exactly when wolves could be killed. During that time, as the months went by, the Amnaha pack kept taking cattle, and Russ and Roblin Brown continued to investigate the depredations, determining when ranchers were owed money, and generally trying to mediate two sides of a conflict that fundamentally disagreed on whether wolves were a symbol of the recovery of wild spaces or the decline of a way of life. Meanwhile, year after year, OR4's pups kept growing up, leaving the pack and dispersing through the state. Later I found out, later we kind of did the math and we found out that he, um, his children or grandchildren are alpha males in, in like almost half of the packs in Oregon. So he's like the, the head of a great Oregon wolf dynasty. More years passed. In 2013, the lawsuit brought by the environmental groups was settled, and the settlement outlined specific rules for killing wolves. Under the terms of what was called Phase 1, a wolf could be killed if a pack was implicated in four depredations within six months. And for years after these rules took effect, OR4 and the Imnaha pack walked right on that line, somehow never taking quite enough livestock to be killed. OR4 really sort of flirted with death, and it's sort of hard to remember that he didn't know he was flirting with death. You know, it's it's almost as if you imagine him laughing at the humans and 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 sort of just barely staying alive, like some sort of trickster figure. A few months later, in 2013, OR4's mate's collar went dead. She was never seen again. Then, in early 2014, Roblin Brown darted OR4 from a helicopter and put a new collar on him. It went dead not long after. But while he was unconscious, she noticed that OR4's teeth were worn down. He was past his prime. She gave him maybe another year to live. And by 2014, it was all starting to take a toll on Russ as well. Here's Roblin. It's very hard on the stress level of a human being to deal with these things, and it, it affects... It, I, don't, I haven't figured a perfect way to keep it from affecting your body. Right. It's very hard stressfully, physically, mentally, emotionally to work in wolves. And is this mostly because of outsiders putting so much pressure on you, outside people? But not outsiders, they're not outsiders. Yeah, they're, but I mean people yeah. outside the agency. Correct, Yeah. correct, absolutely. absolutely. And from all, all different sides, right? I've been surprised to learn um, that people will be willing to say horrible things about somebody they've never met before. Yeah. To me, that was a little bit of a a strange realization that somebody could be so acidic um, towards somebody they've never met. As the wolf population increased over the next year, the stress of killing or not killing wolves only got worse. In 2015, wolves reached phase two of the management plan. Phase two lowered the bar for lethal control. So instead of four depredations in six months, a wolf could be killed if its pack took livestock twice in the same month. And what doesn't get talked about much is the fact that in general, wolves avoid people. Killing livestock is often a sign that a pack is in trouble, that they need to take easy prey. Other times, of course, they just take it because it's easy. But by this point, OR4 was getting to be a very old man for a wolf. Tracking data would later show that he was now using the landscape differently, avoiding high elevations, conserving energy. He was tired, and cattle were just easier to kill than elk. 
On March 9, 2016, the Imnaha pack took down a 500-pound calf. That same day, Roblin Brown was up in a helicopter and spotted the Imnaha pack from the air. She didn't know they had just killed a calf, but they were coming from an area that she wouldn't normally expect to see them coming from. She said Orafor barely ran as she chased and darted him from the helicopter. So, one, were you surprised to see him alive at that point? I wasn't surprised to see him alive. I was surprised to see him in the area where he was. Mm. Um, he wasn't behaving the way he had behaved in the past with using him the landscape. Mm. Um, you know, he kind of had a, you know, we watched him for many years, and he suddenly was doing things a little differently. It wasn't what I was expecting. I wasn't even sure it was going to be him. And I get out there and immediately recognize him and the female that he was hanging with, the breeding female that was limping. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen her quite a few times, too, and was familiar with her. Roblin Brown and Russ Morgan didn't want to put another radio collar on OR4. He was close to the end of his life. And there was a sense that if he could just keep a low profile, he was within barking distance of some kind of wolfy death like being kicked in the teeth trying to bring down an elk, or gored by an antler, or killed in a fight with a younger male. Nature is often quick to hand out natural deaths, especially to tired animals. But Brown did her job. She darted OR4 and collared him one last time, so they would know exactly where he was almost all the time. When she texted Russ to let him know, his heart sank. Without a collar, there was no way to verify that any specific livestock kill tied back to OR4. But now there was. And you were sort of, at some level, your heart sank when they got collars because you now knew that if there was a depredation, there'd be this smoking gun evidence of the collar data. Yeah. 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 A few weeks after getting the new collar, OR4's pack was back at it. So, yeah, they, on March 9th, 2016, they killed a 500-pound steer calf. On March 25th, they killed a ram. On March 28th, they killed two calves. And then on March 30th, uh, they killed a sheep. No, they injured a sheep. Where the limit was two kills in a month, they had killed three times in a week. On March 31st, 2016, the ODFW held a conference call. It was possible OR4 had been pushed out of his territory, they said, by a younger, stronger wolf. Or perhaps he was just worn out. In any case, he would keep killing livestock so long as he lived. Okay, so you did this phone meeting. How did you feel about giving this recommendation? Well, I mean, it was... We'll get to those, I guess. I don't really know. I mean, I just... You know, I went out, I had to kill my dog once. And it's not that I wanted to and all that, but it was time and it needed to be done. She was suffering, so I did. And I didn't want anybody else to do it, so I did. Now, frankly, I had more grief when we collared the wolf than I did on that day because I just, I'd already, maybe I'd already come to realize that something, that something just told me, I just knew we were going to have that there wasn't going to be a great ending. I just always kind of had a feeling it wouldn't be a great ending. Again, it wasn't much of a hunt. OR4 was old. His mate had a limp. And there were already ODFW staff in the area, in a helicopter, with a rifle. OR4 had a fresh radio collar. The kill was surgical. Within two hours of the official decision, the entire pack was gone. 
you know, I mean, Russ said that he had kind of hoped that he would have died a wolfy death. Um, and instead, he had to get shot. And that made Russ sad. And then after they shot them, they brought all four carcasses back by helicopter? Um, they actually went out on the ground and collected all four of them, yes. And did you have to show these ones to the sheriff? Yep. And did he come to you, or did you take them to the Um, I think he went out there. They might have met in the middle somewhere, I don't know. Yeah. And then... That really I... pissed me off. <laughs> pissed me off more this time. First time in 2010 or 11, I, whatever, things were pretty white hot. Mm -hmm. No trust, all those things. This time around, it's like, you gotta be shitting me. Wolf OR4 was buried near a marsh, and his skull collected for research and historical purposes. The response to his death was heartfelt and loud among people who pay attention to wolves. Some wrote beautiful tributes. Others sad obituaries. If any single wolf could be credited with bringing wolves back to Oregon, it was him. Even some of the ranchers who'd called for his death said that over the years they'd come to understand that he was just a wolf being a wolf, that he was a problem, not a villain. None of that made it easier on Russ. A few days after OR4 was killed, his partner, Dana, went to the hospital with a blood clot in her shoulder. As Russ sat there, his heart started racing. A passing doctor listened to it and took him straight to the emergency room. It wasn't a heart attack. It was just beating out of control, likely from stress. Russ spent the last few months of his career at his desk, updating and revising Oregon's wolf plan. Then he retired on September 15th, 2017, saying that he was, quote, tired of the negativity and heartache that is wolf management in the modern world. Here's Roblin Brown. He has valiantly fought for truth and doing the right thing. He has put his everything into it. Um, his heart and soul has gone into conserving wolves. We brought back wolves and thought that they were rewilding the wilderness, restoring some kind of balance between predators and prey. But in Oregon, it's more of a balancing act. Do you feel, I mean, I, I feel like my take on the, the 21st century, 21st century ecology is like almost humans, whether we want to or not, we almost have to play God. And we're making every choice for every species to some extent. Um, do you feel like we are capable of that? Are we able to sort of bend them to our um, intentions? So, yeah, I mean, no. I think that nature is deeply influenced by our actions. I don't think we're any good at intentionally shaping it to our will. <laughs> so we may try to manage it and we're just kind of doing the best we can. And I mean, that's like the story of Russ, you know, at every juncture, he had to do, make what he thought was the best decision. And in some ways, the definition of tragedy is when you do the right thing every single time and you still end up with a sad ending. And that's what happened here. I mean, it was the right call to shoot OR4. And, but the reason that they were able to shoot him so easily is they had to put a fresh collar on him. But the reason they put the fresh collar on him is because they happened to run into him and they had all the stuff with them. And even though they didn't really want to put the collar on him, because at this point they knew he was getting old and they kind of wanted him to just fade away, they're wildlife managers for the state of Oregon. And it was their duty to the public to get information about where this pack was. So they kind of had to put that fifth collar on him. 
So at every step of the way, they made the right choice, but the result was they had to kill an animal they didn't want to. It's almost like there's no lesson here. It's it's like <laughs> random and uh, messy and um, just sort of piecemeal. Yeah, and I mean, I actually, you know, I cover ecology a lot, and 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 after many many years of covering ecology, I have decided that the sort of lesson of ecology is that chance and randomness and historical accident have a much larger effect than you than 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 I initially suspected. I mean, okay, so Isle Royale in in Michigan is this perfect little island that has wolf and moose on it. And it's been studied since 1952 by biologists who initially assumed that what they would see would be this perfect little ecological oscillation between the wolves and the moose. Which is how we sort of assume it would work if we weren't all here yes. changing things, right? But that's absolutely not what they saw because crazy historical accidents and, and randomness. So a wolf falls into an old mine pit and dies. And so then the, that depresses the wolf population because she was the breeding female. or. There's an outbreak of moose ticks, and the moose population craters because of the moose ticks. And then some camper brought his dog to the island, and it gave all the wolves canine parvovirus, and then they all crashed. So if you look at their wolf-moose graph that they've been keeping since 1952, there's no oscillations. There's just a bunch of shit happening one after another. It's just a bunch of contingencies. In other words, there's a temptation to think about nature like it's a machine. Then if you break it, you can fix it by putting all the parts back where they used to be. But ecology doesn't work like that. It's unpredictable. It changes over time. Putting wolves back on a landscape doesn't make it wilderness. They're not really wild animals. They're, we've, we're, we're asking them to live in these little interstitial spaces in between humanity. And, and it's a tough life. That's Emma Maris. This piece was adapted from her story, A Very Old Man for a Wolf. It was brought to you by Jeep, giving you the freedom to pursue adventure. It was produced by me, Peter Frickwright. Music and sound design by Robbie Carver. There was a lot of wolf news this month as we were finishing this story. And the story of wolves in Oregon is hardly over. Last week, ODFW announced that their biologists had counted 124 wolves in Oregon, spread out over 12 packs. It's an 11% increase from the year before. There was a 38% increase in breeding pairs throughout the state. But they are also in the process of taking wolves from the Pine Creek Pack, whose Alpha, OR50, was originally a member of the pack that moved in after OR4 was killed. Over the last month, the Pine Creek Pack has killed four calves and injured seven more in six different depredations. ODFW has killed three of the eight wolves in the Pine Creek Pack since April 10th. Under the current kill order, one more wolf can be taken before May 4th. This episode of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance and wolves. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.